Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 10. Now, the last time, Pastor Anthony did an excellent job on sanctification. And I have to tell you, I, I couldn't wait to tell him when he came up to, to say to him, listen, that's got to be one of the best messages that you've ever preached. Not only was his delivery really good, but the content was excellent. And it's a message. If you didn't hear last Sunday's message, I suggest you get it uh, on, off the website or get a CD because it was just fantastic. And today we're going to deal with really dealing with others in difficult situations overlaid by spiritual warfare. So I'm going to jump into 2 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 1. Now I, Paul, the Apostle Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, you may not be, I may not have to be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So here, the Apostle Paul is really answering a charge of cowardice against himself. And the way Apostle Paul's style was, he would often reiterate the charge against him and then address it, and that's what he's doing here. So in, in essence, there were some in the Corinthian church that were saying, you know, Paul talks tough. You know, his letters are tough. But when he comes in our presence, he's kind of timid and cowardly. Cowardly. There were false teachers. There were itinerant preachers. There were those that were deceiving the Corinthians and trying to pull them away from the Apostle Paul as their shepherd. So a few things going on regarding Paul's demeanor. Number one, he is pleading that he may first be received like Christ in a spirit of gentleness and meekness. And this is how we can learn from the scripture because this is what we should always as believers start with. Now, sometimes things get on our nerves. Sometimes someone will say, make a comment. But if we feel that anger welling up, maybe it's a better idea to just kind of go somewhere else, pray about it, think about it. And, you know, just, just start with the, the example of gentleness and meekness. And the second thing, verse 2. He's basically saying here, I don't want to have to follow through with the plans that I have to be tough in person uh, with some of you and fight really the way the world fights. And it's sad, many don't respond to a gentle spirit. They don't get it until you show that you mean business. Even some believers, instead of, and this is what we should be doing, folks. I mean, this is the, uh, the whole idea surrounding what is church, Ephesians 4 and different scriptures. We come to church, we read the Bible, we, we understand what the Bible says, and then we hide it in our heart and take it with us like that bread, that sustenance, and we apply it to our lives during the week, right? And that's the biggest problem with um, maybe religion or church as a social club because uh, it's not for just to come and hang out and talk to people you haven't seen all week. Really, it's to grow and mature in Christ, right? And live the word. But some, you know, refuse to do that. And a few times in scripture, especially in John chapter 2, Jesus had to be firm. When he was in the temple, you know, he said, zeal for my father's house has eaten me up. They were corrupt, the religious leaders, and they were buying and selling animals in the temple, and they had the money changers there, and they charged usury, and the, uh, it was a scam. The religious leaders would look at the animals that were being sacrificed, and they would try to find some type of blemish 
even if there was none, so that you could buy their animals, and of course it was at an accelerated price. So this was the problem going on, and what Jesus did was he overturned the tables. He made a whip of cords, right? That's not really spoken of that much when people talk about Jesus. Uh, so it was serious business, and sometimes being gritty, being a little strong, right? Showing strength is important. You see, we've been brainwashed in our society to believe that strength is, is bad and we should always just be, um, always have the sweet face and always, even to the point of phoniness, where we, we have this facade that we're all so docile and gentle, but, you know, kind of hide the angry feelings. Even if you look at corporal punishment, right? Uh, the, the, the idea there is you should never spank your children because you should never show them that violence accomplishes anything. That's not what it's all about. First of all, the Bible says that we should. It's a distraction technique. It's to take them off that course of sin and also to show them that there's consequences for behavior. So there are those times, and we're going to see this with Paul, where he had to be a little tough, right? He tried it, the, the gentle and meekness, but it wasn't being received that much. And I have to say that um, that's the biblical model to always show grace, to show grace and show grace and show grace. As a matter of fact, uh, Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, that was his big thing, grace. Grace changes everything. He's written books on grace. But there comes a point in time where uh, it's not being received, okay? And, and that's where the problems come in. And listen, we all should try to emulate that. Be gentle at first, give chances, um, Honestly, if you're sitting across from me at any point in time and I'm taking a hard position with you, you've probably earned it because I've ignored the behavior and I've prayed that something would change, right? And at some point we have to say, listen, we've got to break the cycle. It's got to stop. If I look at my life in three ways, the three Ps, my personal life, I, I try to do that too. And that's what we should do. You know, we should try to show that grace at first. If I look at the, my life as a pastor, it's the same thing. Pray about it. Show grace, right? And even as a police officer, uh, they, they use me to train the, the rookies, right? And I tell these guys, don't jump into a situation and start escalating it. Go into a situation, maintain control, but let people vent. Let, it, let them get it off their chest. A lot of times, people just have something to say. It's not personal. And then you'll find often that when they're done talking about it, there's a release and they feel better and they're more compliant. So that's what we have to look at. And in essence, there's an expression that says, don't mistake my meekness for weakness. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Some of his, his wording styles um, can be, you really have to read the verse a few times. As a matter of fact, especially for this chapter, I went a lot into the Greek-English translation. I looked at other translations because Paul has a, a style, and sometimes it's hard to kind of uh, pick apart what he's saying, but I'm going to do the best I can here. So he goes from this dispute and segues into a fact. He's saying, listen, guys, here's the overlay. Here's the macrocosmic picture. Everything that we deal with has spiritual implications, especially when we war, when we argue, when we debate, when we try to get our point across. There's spiritual implications here to everything. There's nothing sweeter than seeing two believers who have a strong walk with the Lord have sharp disagreements and can smile and shake each other's hands and just agree to disagree. 
That's an awesome thing that when that can happen. But because these two men are filled with the Spirit, or these two ladies, or whatever the case may be, and the harmony that they have is the foundation in Christ and His Word. So, we walk in the flesh, we exist in fallen creation, fallen bodies, but as believers, we don't war, we don't achieve our goals in the flesh, in the temporal. Now, I have to say this. When I go out on patrol, I have equipment. I have a, my Batman duty belt with the gun, right? And the radio and all that neat stuff. And um, I also have this. And I'm going to use this as an illustration today. It's a ballistic vest. Level 3A stops most handgun rounds. And um, it has two titanium plates in the front and in the back, right? Pretty strong. And uh, next to my God and my wife, this is my best friend. Okay? However, that's only for keeping the temporal peace. I could wear that thing 24-7 even when I sleep. It's not going to stop the fiery darts of the wicked one. It's useless. You understand? These tools, the only tools that can help me in dealing with the real bad guys, the demonic realm, the ones that... You ever meet someone who's just so self-destructive? It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be... Uh, sexual sin, whatever it is, they're just so, they, it almost seems like they're on a mission in destroying themselves. Remember the man was the Gadarenes, he was demon-possessed, and he had chains, and he would, they would try to chain him, and he'd break the chains because he was so strong, because he was demon-possessed. While he was possessed, he would hurt himself, he would cut himself on rocks, he would abuse himself, because it's demonic. The demonic world is only looking to destroy us. You have to understand that. So the real bad guys, the demons, and Paul says this is the ones we've got to deal with. Not necessarily the person that you're arguing with or seems obstinate or seems hell-bent on destroying themselves. There's a demonic world that's pulling the strings of men and women like marionettes and making them crash into each other and hurt each other. So that's the real issue going on here. Don't mistake that. Verse 5. The spiritual weapons for casting down arguments and demonic strongholds that keep people prisoners of, of irreconciliation to God, right? There are many evil people in the world, but is the solution to slay them all like the religious wars? That didn't accomplish anything. As a matter of fact, all the religious wars probably made matters infinitely worse. It probably set back God's agenda, or let me just say the furthering of the kingdom of heaven, uh, it, it set it back probably a lot because you even know if you're a born-again Christian and you try to talk to somebody about the Lord What do they bring up? Well the Crusades and the religious wars and all this stuff, you know Christ, uh, Religion religion is the reason why people fight. Okay, so now we have to kind of unbrainwash them from seeing that that wasn't from God That's not God's plan and we can see that in his word, right? If somebody dies or an evil person the demons will just jump from him to somebody else like fleas That's what they do. They look for a body to inhabit so what's the solution? Well, spiritual weapons, not physical weapons. Let me read something to you. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor 
of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So this was really neat. Um, The Apostle Paul learned from Jesus. What did Jesus do? He would see things happening, you know, farming communities, weddings, and he would take that and then he would make an analogy to the spiritual world. That was called a parable, right? So the Apostle Paul certainly had a lot of dealings with Roman soldiers. They were everywhere. Plus, oftentimes he was taken to prison because of his preaching the gospel, because of its, uh, the Roman government's hatred at some point for Christianity. Now, this is interesting. He made a parallel with the suit of armor of the Roman soldier and spiritual armor. Yes, the Roman soldier fights in the spiritual realm, but the spiritual man fights in the spiritual realm. You see, there's a difference. The belt of truth. You see, we cannot even go in to fight any battles unless we have this, the belt of truth. And what was the belt for? The belts kind of helped to keep, just like police and military today, all have duty utility belts. It kept the uh, clothes girded. It kept the equipment where it needed to be. So the, the belt was a very important part of a Roman soldier's accoutrements, right, to keep everything in its place. But in the spiritual realm, he's saying that have the belt of truth. If you're going to be girded to go into battle spiritually, you definitely need that belt, that belt of truth, right? Because what's the problem? When we succumb to lies, it causes instability and confusion. You can't go into battle with, with not knowing the truth. The second thing here is the breastplate of righteousness. Are we righteous? Well, only if we're in Christ, and that righteousness comes from Christ. Now, here's something interesting, and I don't know how how you're going to respond to this, or um, maybe Bible students, but in the Old Testament, the Psalms and and the poetic works would always speak about my my innards, my heart, my my bowels, and it really was a, a representation of a seat of emotions of a person. So if you have the breastplate, Roman soldier had a breastplate of of metal to cover him and protect him. But we have the breastplate of righteousness. And what it does is it protects our vital organs. Again, Paul being a, a rabbi, right? It protects our seat of emotions. And that's important because our emotions can be a runaway train. You all know this. Something happens to your child. Everything goes out the window, and maybe some of us at times at first panic a little bit. What do I do? What do I do? Until we get a hold of ourselves or somebody gets a hold of us. So the emotions are very important, and they need to be covered so that they don't become a runaway train. There are, and again, it's happened. There are some believers, and listen, we all respond emotionally to very difficult situations, but if we're mature in the Lord, we eventually come to our senses, realize that God is in control, and get a hold of ourselves. But there are some who could be in church for 10, 20 years. And once something emotional happens or, um, uh, you know, it's just out of control. And there's no bringing it back to reality. And they act not according to God's word, but they act in the flesh, you see. The next piece of equipment is the gospel of peace as shoes. Now, you can't go forward without the gospel. Well, you can, but you won't make a difference. And the Roman accoutrement, the Roman shoes, had a sort of primitive cleat. 
so that they, when they were in the battle and they had the shield and they had the sword and they were lined up and they were fighting the enemy, uh, what, no matter how much they were getting hit, they couldn't be pushed back because their, their strong leg was dig, dug into the ground with those cleats. So the gospel of peace is our shoes. We don't go backwards. We move forward with the gospel. You understand? That is a really important part of our equipment. The shield of faith. To quench the fiery darts of the evil one. Again, the Roman shield. Paul would have seen this day in and day out. Uh, they had this, this uh, three-quarter shield that they would hold. And they have to be in really good shape to hold that shield. And the flaming arrows of the enemy. Or, um, they actually had this configuration that they would make where they would line up all around the perimeter with the shields out. And the ones on top would hold the shields up. And the way they tested the formation of these men was they would actually use a ramp and drive a chariot up that formation, and the men would have to hold up the shields so as, the, as the wheels were going across it and then coming down. And that would show you that your company or your garrison was in good shape. They knew what they were doing. So that shield of faith, again, like the vest, useless in the spiritual world. Good for stopping bullets, but that's about it. The shield of faith so that we don't succumb to the fiery darts of the wicked one. And what are those darts? God can't use you. You're stupid. You're useless, you know, or you're great. God needs you. Look at all the fiery darts when they come at us. They get us into a position where they start to affect us. It's anything that takes us off the foundation of what God has for us. So those, that shield of faith stops those fiery darts. The helmet of salvation protects the mind. Again, the Roman soldier would have these helmets. So if they got hit with a club or something to that nature, hopefully it would stop the blow of most um, weapons that were coming their way. But the helmet of salvation protects the mind. You understand? Only if we're saved first can we make a difference in anyone else's life. There are many of charities. There are many charities out there. There are many social clubs. But... I'll just quote from K.P. Yohannan from Gospel for Asia. He's an ethnic Indian over in India, and he has this, this very large ministry to the Indian people. And he said, he has an open letter to the, to the Americans. He says, don't just send my people money, because what you're going to do is you're going to educate them, you're going to take care of them with hospitals, and you're going to send them to hell a little bit better prepared in the, in the temporal realm, which is going to do nothing for them. K.P. Yohannan says, Send my people the gospel. Don't give to organizations that just feed them and clothe them. Give to organizations that feed them and clothe them and house them, but also give them the message of salvation, which is good for eternity. So that's important. And the, the last one is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that's the only offensive weapon, in a sense, in this um, um, uniform accoutrement, so to speak. I want you to turn to Hebrews 4. And we're going to start with verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. He speaks about uh, the word of God here. Verse 12, he says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's interesting because the swords back then... Right? Today, the military fights with rifles, assault rifles, and tanks, and all those kind of things. But back then, the sword was your main piece of equipment that could help you to fight the enemy. And they took pride in sharpening those swords to the point that they could probably cut paper 
or, or anything else to that nature and cut through uh, certain types of metal. But he says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That sword of the spirit, that word of God goes so deep that it can, it can see inside anybody's mind what they're thinking. You know, we can all have relationships with each other. We can talk to each other. But I haven't mastered the art of mind reading yet. I don't think any of you have. But the word of God can cut through anything. Anything. Imagine that. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that's a big problem with the whole evolutionist and uh, pseudoscience field is that these scientists are so smart. They have such big egos that they couldn't possibly imagine being naked and open to an all-powerful God that's higher than them. So a lot of their theories are based on pride. I don't, I got to be accountable to a God? No, I'm accountable to me. I love me. I'm my own God. I'm so smart. Nobody's smarter than me. You understand? So there's like a behavioral or, or um, uh, emotional component to this. But that's power, the word of God, to make a difference. Now, too many believers are going into spiritual battle without their equipment. Let's go back to this. How many of you who love me, and hopefully that's all of you, <laughs> when, I go into, when I go on patrol, you know, I've been a road, road police officer for 19 years, and I said today, you know what, I'm not going to wear this anymore. I just don't feel like it. It's uncomfortable. You would say, some of you would say, that's stupid. <laughs> you would say, oh, please put it on. But the bottom line is you wouldn't, and again, these are, this is a parable. A parable is when you take something in the temporal world and make a parallel to the spiritual world. So it's the same token, folks. I mean, brothers and sisters, we don't go into spiritual battle without our gear because we're going to get creamed and we're going to retreat and we're going to wonder why. Where was the Lord? We didn't have our spiritual equipment on. You understand? By the same token, we can't achieve spiritual goals through carnal means. Carnal believers will never make a difference to those they're trying to bring to the gospel. They'll become frustrated because they're ineffective. We need to have our spiritual gear. Now in context, let's bring it back to the story or the letter. In first century Greece, there was damning philosophies. And if I could make a parallel, there was a lot going on in Greece. If you look at extra biblical sources and, and biblical sources, there was, the Greeks were great philosophers. You know, some of the best philosophers came out of Greece, right? But that was the problem. It was all intellect. And they thought that their intellect could save them. So this is the, the difficulty that the Apostle Paul was dealing with because in the Corinthian church, it was very affluent, it was very uh, um, knowledgeable uh, city, and when these false teachers came through and they, they, um, they baited the people, right, with this intellect and philosophy, and the Apostle Paul saying, no, 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 you're going in the wrong direction, right? But today, it's no different. Recycled heresy based in man-centered philosophy and intellectualism. You see, that's going to be a, um, a trap for many because it's going to say, listen, you can still be saved, but you are your own God. Oh, that's great. I get the best of both worlds. Of course, it's not true. And unfortunately, some of this stuff is making its way into the church. Verse 5 and 6. Let me just read it again. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and 6. He says... It's, this is good for casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish 
old disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You got to look at the play on words here. He's saying that these spiritual weapons are good for saving souls. Put on the armor of God. We fight against spiritual issues and, and demonic places, right? And it causes the rebels to submit to God. And he's basically saying, but we're going to start with you, Corinthian rebels. Right? That's what he's saying here. And again, it's sad that many are used by demonic forces, but it's even more tragic when it's in the church. The Bible says that judgment starts in the house of God. And the Apostle Paul certainly wanted Corinth to be a base, because if you look at his, um, his uh, migratory routes or his uh, missionary routes, Corinth was one of the furthest reaches at that point of the known world that he had reached. And his desire was for the Corinthians to be matured and to grow in Christ and the Word. So they can use that as a springboard to go to even further reaches with the gospel. But, unfortunately, he had to deal with some of these issues that they weren't getting past. And I just, uh, just a note on spiritual warfare. I found that, you know, I'm, I'm fairly mediocre intelligence, I suppose. Uh, and I, I've talked to people and I've debated things. But I found that when I'm not prayed up and I'm not sticking strictly with tenants of God's word, I can do okay, but and when I look back, I realize, you know what, I left God behind, and I don't think I even made a difference. I wasted my time. It's only when I'm prayed up, and I'm using the word, and I'm using that as my foundation, and I go into a situation, I know that either A, they're going to be won over by the word, or B, they're going to further harden themselves, and that's an issue between them and their God, right? Isaiah 55, it says, the word doesn't come back void. What that means is that some will become even more hardened in their position. Look at Pharaoh and other characters in the Bible. So spiritual warfare is important. If we don't have our equipment on, we're not prayed up, we're not going to accomplish much, and we're wasting our time. Verse 7. Paul says, Do you look at the things according to outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ." For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That was really insulting. As we discussed, the inability to achieve spiritual goals through temporal means. Paul's now saying it's just as impossible, Corinthians, to make a spiritual discernment or judgment based on temporal observations. The Corinthian believers got caught up in the popularity trap. Now, if you go and you look at the Bible, if you look at the critics of Paul, even if you look at extra-biblical sources, even outside the Bible, they all admit that this Saint Paul existed, right? And some even describe him uh, in a way that's very unflattering. I'm not going to go into the descriptions, but uh, apparently he may also not have been a great orator. I mean, he had the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean he had to be a great orator. Well, that's interesting because Isaiah 53, 2 said, Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, his outward appearance was not much to look at either. If we saw uh, what Jesus really looked like in the flesh, we might not even take a double take. Right? So that wasn't the importance. 1 Samuel 16, 7, you see the theme here. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is a big-time problem in American society. We are judged by the color of our skin, by our clothes, by the neighborhood that we live in, by how big the square footage is of our home, 
I don't even know. I never even measured the square footage of my home. By our ethnicity, by our accents, by our physique, by the color of our hair, by our body types. That's pretty stupid. By our education level. And that's what we do in the United States. Let me just look at, I'm going to reference two brief articles here. I'm not going to go into them too deeply, but I mean, what's this world coming to? Jihad Jamie, have you heard of her? Blonde hair, blue eyes, 31 years old. She's a jihadist, right? She could have been a soccer mom. She could have been your next door neighbor with her kid and whatever. She's got arrested overseas. And imagine if they came, the, the feds or the CIA, or whatever, they came and they scooped her out of their house. And the, news, the newscaster comes to you and you say, gee, she just seemed like an all-American girl. She's a jihadist. Sick. She's a sick woman. Here's another one. Um, talk about this woman. She's uh, 43 years old. They have her mugshot. Uh, she solicited an undercover cop to have her husband killed. And, and the guy says to her, well, you know, it's going to be X amount. And she goes, that's really expensive. How about, what can I get for this much? He goes, well, I could maim him and cripple him. That's what I want. <laughs> so she got like a bargain basement deal for maiming her husband. But the, the fact is the guy had millions and she was looking to bump him off so that she could get his money. Again, two, she was a soccer mom, right? Three kids, two women that you would look at again, shamefully for us, I believe, I believe anything anymore with anybody. Well, look at this person and see, we're making a judgment because she looks pleasing to us. What about the person that doesn't look pleasing? I've seen guys, burly guys with tattoos and the beards and the, and the leather, and they're the nicest guys you ever want to meet, right? But we still do it in America. We look at folks and we make a negative judgment by their appearance, and we look at others and make a positive judgment by their appearance. And they could be the meanest, cruelest people. Let's get a little bit more personal. What about in Christianity? I've seen pastors graded more on their delivery than what they've been delivering. I've heard conversations of, oh, that pastor, you know, he, he, he didn't speak very well. Well, what did you learn today? Oh, I, I don't know. I wasn't listening that much. Again, just looking for something to pick at, but not looking at the content. And I believe this is what's happening with the Apostle Paul. By the flip side, Paul was dealing with false teachers, very charismatic men, that would go from church to church, speak very eloquently, have a nice smile, be sweet as pie, and, he made, and they made sure they got a lot of money from the church before they moved on to the next one, right? This is what Paul's dealing with. Another word on appearance. Again, let's get a little bit more personal. If there's anyone who believes that Calvary Chapel Crossfield is now legitimate because we have a building, you should repent of that sh shameful thought. That goes for anyone outside too. The first four centuries of churches had no church buildings. They met in each other's homes. When there was persecution, they would meet in caves. They would meet anywhere, right? The attitude today in American society, Western society, is that unless you have a huge building and your face all over the internet and that you're reaching the furthest corners of the earth, now what happens is the building and the ministry becomes a god. And we forget about, we, lo we lose our way. Right? Where, where, where do we go wrong? Where's God? I don't see him. I think we left him back there. So it's very important to look at, um, you know, that we don't lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. Right? Building worship, it happens in a lot of churches and a lot of ministries. 
Now, the context, again, is that these itinerant preachers, these charismatic guys were coming in, and the Apostle Paul couldn't get to Corinth and, and get on the train and head over there. It was a, a, by foot travel, and it could have taken months, depending on where he was. But verse 7, he says, if anyone can claim to be of Christ, we certainly can. We're the ones who birthed you. We're the ones who gave you the gospel. We founded you, me and Timothy and, and, and his other um, co-laborers. The charge was that Paul had no authority, and it was all based on superficiality. As you can see, his appearance, his, his demeanor, but not the substance. Verse 8, and he basically says here on the authority note, if I speak of my own authority, it's to build you up, not to destroy you. Sometimes authority has to be used to bring someone from the, from the brink of falling into sin and grab them and pull them back and shake them and say, wake up, pay attention. What, you're going in the wrong direction. And that's what he was trying to do with them. And verse 9, my stern letters are not meant to terrify you for terrifying sake. There's a spiritual reason for them. There's a proverb that says, Proverbs 27, 6, that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, I looked that up in the Hebrew because I was curious of the deeper meaning of that word, and wound means wound as if you took a spear and you thrust it through someone. Now, I'm not suggesting that physically, okay? There's, a, of course, a meaning behind it. And a friend was really, in the Hebrew, was some, anyone who loves you. So what he's saying is that sometimes friends will wound us. Sometimes those who love us will wound us. And you know what's really painful? Because I've had this happen to me. As a brand new husband, my first year of marriage, I was messing it all up. And I had a pastor little Puerto Rican guy from Kearney, uh, he's, he's spoken here before. God bless him. He's like a spiritual father to me. He sat me down and wagged his finger in my face and told me what a jerk guy I was and what a bad husband. And it was 1230 at night. And he said, go find flowers for your wife. And I made excuses. He goes, I don't care if you have to go to every store that's open late, find flowers and bring them to your wife. He wounded me. He wounded my character. He hurt my feelings. And the only reason why I didn't get up and strangle him is because my life was a mess, <laughs> right? <laughs> so he, he, had, he had the power of the Holy Spirit, man, I'll tell you. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't fun. But I needed that. I needed to be wounded. And you know what? Sometimes in the American church, there's a haughtiness that you can say whatever you want, teach me stuff from the pulpit, but if you come to me person to person and you say something that offends me, I'm leaving the church. And I will find a church where someone doesn't do that. And that's wrong. There's far less wounding that's happening that needs to happen in the American church. I got stuck with so many spear holes, I looked down and I thought I was Swiss cheese. You just got that? <laughs> but it made me a better man. And this was so cool because Pastor Anthony's uh, sermon last Sunday, again, I was... I, was, I wanted to jump up and say yippee because it was a great message on sanctification. You know, sometimes in the Calvary movement, we so focus on come as you are, we don't care how you look, and that's true and good. You know, just come in, hear the words of God, you know, that started with the hippie movement, and yeah, we don't care if you don't have shoes, just come in and walk in. You know, they love to walk around barefoot and ruin the carpets. But the point is that that was really the thing. Chuck Smith said, because the oils from the feet and the dirt were ruining the carpets. And the elders were saying, we have to replace the carpets. We can't let these hippies in. And Chuck Smith said, who cares about the carpets? Every few months, we'll rip them up, let these people come in here and hear the word of God. And many of them became pastors over the years. But where was I? See, this is why I have notes. 
I have no idea where I was. Can somebody want to yell out for me? Thank you, sanctification. That was great, because I was going to move on to the next point. But the cool thing is that we, well, the problem is we focus so much on come as you are, but sometimes we forget about change. Come as you are, but let the Lord change you. If after 10 years you look back and you're still the same stinky person, spiritually, that's a problem. So sanctification is very important. Looking forward, looking to be like Christ, looking to emulate him, and leaving the older things behind. Okay, now we can move on. Verse 11. Let such a person consider this. What we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. He answers the charge of being a weakling. Basically, if you think we're weaklings, when we get there, we'll show you that we're not weaklings. And it's really sad that some only respond to force. That's why we have police departments and militaries, for protection. Could you imagine if they took a day off? There would be chaos, and they would, you'd never get it back again, right? But it's tragic when it happens in the church. Say it ain't so, shouldn't happen. Verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not extending ourselves beyond our sphere, thus not reaching you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in another man's labor, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishments. So, there was, again, let's go back to commending themselves by themselves, measuring themselves with themselves, all that kind of stuff. There were self-appointed leaders in Corinth who believed their own propaganda. You ever see that? Someone who's so self-deceived, they think that they're so wonderful that they believe their own propaganda and they won't listen to anything else. And these guys were, were supposedly leaders. They measure themselves by themselves and commend, compare themselves among themselves. And Paul says, that's not wise, that's dumb. This was the, what I call the mutual admiration society, the circle of the self-deceived. You're great, Bob. No, you're great, Joe. No, Bob, you're greater. Come on, tell me. Come and bring it back. I got news for you. If, you. if our friends only tell us how great we are, then we really don't have friends. If we have a circle of people that surround us that only tell us what we want to hear, they're not loving us, and we're not loving them. And I've had friendships where that's happened and God's broken them up. He's like, that's not edifying. That's not for you, right? We need to love each other, to be honest with each other, and not just try to build, build ourselves up. Uh, 13 and 14 in a nutshell, again, God used Paul and his co-laborers to bring the gospel to Corinth and shepherd them. But some in Corinth tried to deceive the people to suit their own goals, all right? And Paul here is being a little territorial, but he's doing it for the sake of love and protection of his own flock. Right? And 15, he says, as your faith increases, our work among you will be magnified. And again, the hope is as the Corinthians matured, it would be a springboard to missions even further out in that Roman world. But Paul spent so much time bogged down in discipline and explaining himself that some of the works, uh, the Lord's work there was hindered. And verse 16, he says that we were careful not to tread on another man's labor or another man's sphere of accomplishments as the deceivers did. There are some who have such big egos 
that they want to just appoint themselves as leaders, right? They may come to a work that's already established. They don't want to break ground. They don't want to do the hard work. They just want to pull from an established work. They don't want accountability. They don't want to work hard. They don't want submission to leadership. They don't want to follow the rules of the Bible. Understand? And, but they do want their ministry, so to speak, their self-appointed ministry, to revolve around their personal life. Let me tell you something. You can't be a leader if you don't sacrifice. Every leadership uh, has self-sacrifice attached to it. Otherwise, it's not true leadership. We have to give something up, right? Especially in ministry, uh, to be used as a leader, right? So this is, this is important. There's been men and women who have done this. You know, they've come in time and time again, looking to prop themselves up. And again, it's the testing of self-sacrifice, not simple desire that makes a leader. Verse 17, and we'll wrap it up. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For he who commends himself is, for not, not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And in this verse, verse 17, the Apostle Paul is quoting out of Jeremiah 9, and it all boils down to this. Back then, there was too much patting themselves on the back, patting each other's on the back, right? And glorying in a person's outward appearance. There wasn't enough glory given to God. And I gotta tell you this, a man or a woman who tries to steal God's glory, we, we talked about the building. God did it in a way that no man could get the glory. He did it so that he could get the glory. And that should always be our goal. I would never want to stand next to a man who tries to take God's glory for himself. And it's no different today. It doesn't matter what we or our friends or society says good or bad of us. It only matters what God thinks of us. And the bottom line is when we pick up the Bible and we look at it, it's like a mirror. Because, it, not, not that it reflects our, our facial features, but when we read it, God's word, it shows us where we lack, right? So the bottom line is this, brothers and sisters, that this can only be found, what's right, in the, in the end, what's commendable, is what God thinks of us. And that can only be found by receiving God's word and applying it to our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you.